We're uh, in John 18, and this is the setting or the situation, if you will, of uh, Jesus here in the garden. And I want to just uh, touch a base here. By, by the way, let me say one other thing here. You know, this uh, ministry, while you're turning to John 18, this ministry that uh, has uh, begun uh, in, or is in Roatan started in this class. I, maybe you know that, maybe you don't. Started out of this class a burden that Gary and Charlotte Shaw had and began the process of seeing the need, it started right in this class. And that's one of the reasons why we feel such ownership. And over the years, it's sort of changed and adjusted. And now it's kind of come under the national agencies of the Church of God. Uh, over the, but, but just think about that. Out of a couple of people's heart and a concern that they saw and a need in this class helped pick up some of that. So anyway, I just, just want you to know that it's kind of our... Uh, the ministry there. And of course, Deborah was a part of this Sunday school class. And so you guys have been part of sending and empowering uh, through uh, uh, the vision that Gary and Charlotte had and then the way that it's moving. And so, you know, just need to know that. All right. Hey, uh, in this uh, section here, I said last weekend, uh, I want to just remind you where we are here in the context. Uh, John, in recording this event of Jesus' last night of earthly ministry is sort of unusual. Uh, and and we'll, we'll look at that uh, in, in one sense. And for instance, uh, in this uh, particular uh, context here, there's no mention of Gethsemane, just a garden, a garden. And I said to you, because of John's, if you will, reliance upon the Old Testament and his uh, understanding of that, I, I'm not going to say you have to believe this, but but the idea of a garden has a lot of theological baggage in history. There was a garden once where somebody failed. And now there's a garden here where somebody succeeds. It's just interesting. He doesn't say the garden. He just says a garden might, might raise some of those issues there for the reader. Uh, there's, uh, there's no mention of Jesus' request for the disciples to pray for him. No request at all. Here in John's account, there's no request. Hey, pray with me for an hour, can't you? None of that. There's no mention of Jesus' agony in this account. Uh, there, there's no agonizing prayer. There's no kiss from Judas that identifies uh, Jesus. There's no prediction of Peter's denial, and yet the denial is recorded. There, there are lots of things here that are different. Um, if you, and we said it happens here in this context. It's in the Kidron Valley. The Kidron is this green area. This is the Mount of Olives. It used to be the Mount of Olives. I told you now it's the grave of the Jews. Everybody wants to be buried there. And so these are all graves. They cut the olive trees down to get in there to make those graves. When we were there some years ago, we saw people with a pickaxe. They're digging down trying to get in. But the, but the Kidron Valley is this area here. I think it's on. This green area. Here we go. This green area down here. This is actually the Garden of Gethsemane. But through here, it's on the, this side of the eastern wall in Jerusalem. It's the eastern wall where the Messiah is to come. There's a lot of, lot of uh, if you will, imagery here. A garden, the Kidron Valley, where the Messiah will come, where judgment will occur, and he will enter then into Jerusalem uh, right here in this uh, eastern gate area. Uh, and uh, so there, there's, there's lots of... Um, Lots of imagery here about this. And in reading this, as I note those things, one of the things that comes to my mind is this, that Jesus is in command of the situation. 
Jesus is in command of this situation. There is very little uh, language or understanding about this that suggests uh, anything else in my mind. Last week, we, we looked at that in this being in command is Jesus initiating uh, the, the conflict. He initiates it. Who are you looking for? He says. Uh, second of all, Jesus' determination. Those are not on your. These are not on your notes. I'm just trying to bring us back up to speed. Uh, Jesus' determination uh, that he says, uh, "I'm going to drink this cup that the Father's given me," and uh, his determination was to protect uh, his uh, followers. So now we let's go back into this. We're going to begin reading here uh, in John 18. Uh, about verse uh, eight, about verse twelve, John eighteen, verse twelve, where we'll kind of pick this up again. I've got so many notes here; I don't know where they all are. Uh, John uh, eighteen, maybe I'll get my Bible here. How about that? It's probably found in there, isn't it? Somewhere, yeah. I've been on spring break. I've rested. Uh, yeah, in John, John eighteen twelve, and and it seems to me again that this section here. So the Roman cohort and the commander of the officers of Jesus arrested Jesus and bound him. Verse 13, and led him to Anna, Annas first, for he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now, Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the nation. That's earlier uh, in John. Simon Peter was following along Jesus, so that was, the, uh, was another disciple. Now, that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter, standing by the door outside, so the other disciple was known to the house, went on through and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, you're one of, the, one of this man's disciples, aren't you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire. And I, I would just ask you to underline that word, charcoal fire. We're going to deal with that in a, few, in a chapter or so. It's, it, is, it is critical. It's the only place, there are two other places in the entire New Testament that the word charcoal fire shows up. Now, you may say, well, Cliff, that doesn't mean, it, it means a lot. I'll, I'll explain that later. But it is very significant. And John is making note of something here he's going to pick up. And it's going to be really important. Uh, and so there's a charcoal fire. For it was cold and they were waiting, warming themselves and standing, warming themselves. Verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered, I've spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who've heard what I spoke to them. They know what I've said. While he was standing there, one of the officers standing by nearby struck Jesus saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, if I had spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? So Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Again, John comes back to this matter about Peter. And again, you know, uh, one of the things that John does here, he adds some detail, and he's going to pick it up later. I want to suggest to you that the, the fact of his, his kind of adding detail is that he's being very selective in what he puts in here, and that's for a particular purpose. Now, Simon was standing and warming himself, so said to them, You're, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? And in, in Greek, the answer is yes. The Greek can write it that way where it answers. He denied it and said, I am not. 
One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of one of those whose Peter's, who, of the ear of whose Peter had cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium. It was early, and themselves, and they did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, that they might eat the Passover. Now I want to stop right there. And uh, last week, if you were here at church, uh, I didn't realize this, but I thought, oh my goodness, Terry Fakes is teaching on John 18. Anybody here remember that? I'm just watching going, I'm going to have nothing to say next week. Okay. I'm just, I mean, I'm putting on the brakes in my feet. I'm saying, don't go there, Terry. Don't say that, you know? And luckily there's an area here that I really want to dig down on. Uh, that 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 uh, there really is, and so I want to look at this first of all in this matter of Jesus's confrontation. Jesus's confrontation. I want to spend a little time here on this. Again, this idea of Jesus is in command of the situation. Jesus is in command of the situation. Notice here how Jesus uh, is dealing with two guys. One of them is Annas, or A N N A S, Annas, and then uh, also Caiaphas. This is interesting here because both of them are called the high priest. Both, both of them are called the high priest and they're sent to them. Um, what, what, what is in this setting is this, is that the high priesthood in Israel had become very political. Uh, right after, if you will, the Maccabees had driven the Gentiles out, the, the Greeks out, uh, Judas Maccabees, uh, who was the original hammer, not to... Uh, not to hammer time, but uh, what was that guy? I forgot his name now. Just lost it. MC Hammer. No, that, that was Judas Maccabees was the original MC Hammer. That's what his name means, Judas the Hammer Maccabees. When they drove the, the Greeks out, they set up really the rule in Israel. Uh, the high priest became really a political pawn. And uh, over time, uh, the, when the Romans took over, they began to set these guys up somewhat like they did with Herod. Terry told us last week this idea of this matter. And so Jesus is confronting, in, in, in some ways, both the religious state and the political state at the same time. Because the ruler or the high priest, if you will, in that time was positioned and put into place by the Romans. Annas and Caiaphas have been pretty good, uh, if you will, politicians, have been pretty good at positioning themselves. And now they find themselves in the position of authority and Jesus is in their presence. It's interesting to me, if you, as we read uh, in this, the high priest questioned Jesus <clears throat> about his disciples and about his teaching. Notice there in verse 19, he questioned him about his disciples and his teaching. Now, we have to read and understand this, that Jesus answered, I've spoken out plainly. He said, I've been in the temple and in the synagogue, and that's where teaching occurred. I mean, what's, what's the problem here? Well, there, there are several problems here, what Jesus had been teaching. And so he said, I've taught nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Now, I, I want to ask you to look into this, that Annas and Caiaphas are bringing Jesus into the situation, but Jesus is confronting them with the fact that they're actually calling into account his teaching. I want to tell you a couple of things about this interrogation. Notice it says there, he questioned Jesus. You may have read this or studied this before, but um, the proceedings that Annas and Caiaphas are, are taking on are illegal. All of them. Let me give you a couple of thoughts here about the questioning. Um, first of all, 
Jesus before Caiaphas was Ill, it was illegal for Jesus to be before, before Caiaphas because there cannot be a sole judge in any case. Caiaphas is questioning him. He is becoming the sole judge, and it's illegal. Uh, the second thing is that it's illegal. This all comes from the Mishnah and from the Talmud. The second thing is they're asking Jesus to defend himself. And in, at least, if you will, in Jewish law, uh, the, the, in Jewish law, uh, you, let me get my, here we go. In Jewish law, you cannot ask a defendant to incriminate themselves. That's a little bit like our law. You know, you cannot, you know, you can't incriminate yourself just by saying, I did something. That the idea here is that Caiaphas cannot ask Jesus to incriminate himself. Another thing that's interesting. You cannot try someone of a capital offense and give judgment on the same day. Can't be done. Here it is out of the Mishnah. A criminal case resulting uh, on the same day, if, if they get accused on the same day, can't be carried out. I found this interesting also. Um, a case resulting in the acquittal of an accused can end on the same day. But if a sentence's death is pronounced, it cannot be conducted before the following day. Can't be done. Uh, the law states also that it was unanimous that Jesus was guilty, right? Caiaphas, Annas, and a few others. Listen to this. A simultaneous and unanimous verdict of guilt rendered on the day of a trial has the effect of acquittal. In other words, if on the first day of a trial everybody says he's guilty, then the law demands he's acquitted. Because they know how people work and how people get their people together and do things. So on lots of levels, this trial is a confrontation. What is it? I, I want to suggest it's the confrontation of Jesus to these people who are going to use and misuse the law that they say they love so much to kill him. If anybody reading this from a Jewish background reads this and understands it was at night, again, uh, Terry uh, gave us some information on that last week, at night, that's illegal. The idea of it being, if you will, uh, a, a, a unanimous uh, decision, acquittal. Acquittal. Um, it can't be, uh, no, and other, no one can bring an accusation against himself. Should a man make a confession of guilt before a legally constituted tribunal, such a confession is not to be said against him at all. Maimonides says you can't. So when they say to Jesus, hey, tell us about your teaching and your disciples. He's invoking his right to not incriminate himself. In, in other words, it's just, it, it's, I don't, have you heard this before? This is in, on like seven or eight levels. This trial by their own law is illegal. Isn't that interesting? And in Jesus' life here, I want to suggest to you, in, in some sense, he is confronting this wicked, politically motivated, unjust trial. He's in command of the situation. He's revealing in the midst of this of their actual unwillingness to even abide by the law. I don't know if it's striking to you at all, and I'm trying to run, I want to get through with chapter 18 today. I know this feels like the bends when you're coming up from scuba diving, but we're going to do this. 
Jesus said, I've done nothing in secret. I've, I've done nothing in secret. You, you know what I've done. You, you know what I've done. Then Jesus gets struck by the officer of the high priest. And Jesus said, if I've spoken wrongly, testify to it. But if you strike me, why did you do it? Jesus confronts them. Listen, you bring the truth to bear here. As I'm reading this, I'm thinking, how did these people get here? How, how did these leaders get to this point? Because I'll, I'll tell you, one of the concerns I have is sometimes I've had Jesus confront me. I don't know, maybe you have, like I love what Tim Keller says, if, if the God you serve has never confronted you, it's not the God of the Bible, right? If he hasn't ever confronted you or, or dealt with you or said something to you. That, that, that this, whole, this whole notion of Jesus saying to them, you prove it. You show me where I've been wrong. Well, they can't. It's obvious. So they have to break their own law in order to convict him. Jesus is clearly in command. Now, you've got two of these guys, Annas and Caiaphas. We went to actually Caiaphas's house uh, there in Jerusalem. We were there a few years ago. And there's a room there that is where historically they believe that Jesus was held. And I can only tell you, when you walk into that room, uh, there's a quite a, a, a sense of, um, I don't know if it's God's presence or if it's a sense of history or it's a sense of, of whatever. <clears throat> but to think that here's a place where these guys are holding the king of glory, breaking their own law, manipulating the evidence in order to kill him is... Uh, is pretty staggering. Now the claim that they're alleging Jesus with is blasphemy. I think I've got something here. Well, I want to have you have this quote here. Here we go. I think this is some of what is going on with these guys. Upton Sinclair said, it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. <laughs> You know, it's difficult to get a guy to understand something, or, or a lady, I guess, if his salary or paycheck depends on not understanding it. This is what's going on with these Jewish leaders. You know, they, they, they can't afford to understand this. What's fascinating to me, and this comes out of some history, I, I, I want to give you this picture here, I think, if it will work. It should. It's supposed to. Talk among yourselves. <laughs> Try it again. That this confrontation is fascinating. Come on. Don't you love technology? <laughs> Here it is. These high priests, there we go. These high priests, both of these, Annas and Caiaphas, this is the high priestly garb or what is regularly understood this. The, the uh, charge against Jesus is blasphemy. That he's claimed I'm God or he's claimed I'm the king of the Jews. That'll get important here. On this particular, what they call the miter or the hat here, there's a gold band, um, and, and this is, again, part of the history of it. There's a gold band here, and on that gold band on that hat miter, it says this, 
holiness unto Yahweh. And every high priest would wear it. And what's interesting, of particular interest, is the gold band here on the high priest miter or hat. It was taught that this band that said this, this gold band, that that gold band, when the high priest went in, would forgive the sin of blasphemy. Think about that. Here is Caiaphas before Jesus and has this hat and these these robes on and over the top of the band of the miter hat that he wears is this statement that he knows and all Israel teaches forgives blasphemy. What is Jesus charged with? Blasphemy. What is this priest doing? Condemning him. Jesus confronts this religious legalistic system on lots of levels. One, that you've had an illegal trial. Two, that you've violated the very truth that you teach that the high priest, his own garments, have the ability to forgive blasphemy, even if it's done. This priest does not forgive, he condemns. Here Jesus is in direct confrontation with them. I want you to look with me, if you will. Uh, I said we're going to come back and pick this thing up about Peter. But then look at this, uh, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium. Now, the praetorium is the, uh, the uh, uh, housing area for Pilate or for the procurator there. And it was early. And Terry helped us understand that last week, that it's early, early. Again, this is one of the illegal illegalities of it. And they did not enter the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but they might eat the Passover. You find that strange as I do? We're going to kill the Son of God through an illegal trial. We're going to refuse to offer if we thought he needed forgiveness by the basis that he could be forgiven because of what's written on the high priest. But we're not going to go in to the Gentile place or we might be defiled. Hey, think with me about that. I've been thinking about this for a couple, three days, and I haven't got it figured out yet. How does that happen? How does legalism create that kind of insanity? Think about this. I told Marty one time, I said, you know, if you're a real legalist, when you come in the parking lot, you turn it off Portland, it says stop. You got to wait for that sign to say go. <laughs> it just says stop. So I just, everybody got to stop, right? How does that kind of legalism, how does that happen to where now the, the, the entire sense of what is right and wrong is lost. See, this is where I think Jesus is confronting them. Confronting them. The, the, the idea that we're not, we're not going to go in here because that might defile us, but we're going to kill an innocent person. Help me here. I'm being serious. Help. Think, think about this. Some, some of y'all have good ideas. You know, I was going to say that. I say, why didn't you say that while you were in class? Right? Yeah. Where? Oh. I, yes, this is my bad ear. <laughs> mm -hmm. No matter what, yeah. Frustration, yeah. Frustration gets, a, gets them to the point that, hey, whatever it takes, we're going to do it. You know, don't, don't confuse me with the facts. My mind is made up. They've justified. They've rationalized it. How does that kind of legalism get hold of us, sir? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, he's asking the question for recording. And, and Diane said that because of this buildup to, you know, they can't get rid of it. Why, why this way? Yeah, right. Jesus threatens. Yeah. It's fear, but fear of what? Are you exactly, but what's the truth he's exposing? Well, here, here's what I think it is. He is, I'll use an American term here. He is threatening the military industrial complex that Dwight Eisenhower warned us about in the 50s. This religious thing is an absolute industrial complex. They run it. They own the sacrifices. The, uh, Alfred Edersheim tells in The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, the incredible wealth that these two men had gathered because they ran the religious system. So the fear here is he's going to destroy the military industrial complex called Judaism. He's going to make God accessible. He's going to make all of us priests and kings. He's going to make the ending of sacrifices where there's no more business being done. And that's why I gave you that Upton Sinclair quote. You can't convince a guy of the truth when his salary or paycheck's connected with not understanding it. This is an industrial complex. You know, uh, so truth, but yes, Stuart, I, this is why they're worked up. They're going for, it's kind of a crude way to say, they're going to be out of a job. They're going to be out of a job. <clears throat> Lose their power. Listen, I remember when I was a pastor, one time I was driving down the road and, and uh, uh, praying about the church and about them and they and why won't they, you know. I was really letting my church get it from the, I was telling the Lord about my church. And it actually wasn't my church, it's God's church. See, that's the problem. Somebody said to me one time, so where's your church? I said, I don't own one. I work for God, but the church is over there. <laughs> it's not mine. It's not my church, right? It's not my church. But I was driving and griping and belly aching about, you know, they wouldn't do this and the people wouldn't do that. And why won't people do this? And the Lord just said to me, Cliff, the reason you're praying about this is because you're afraid. I said, not really. <laughs> Kept driving. Turned the radio up. <laughs> A little louder. What? Right. He said, your career is tied to this. And you're afraid of failure. Because it isn't about the church anymore. It's about your career. Ouch. I remember jogging down Ryan Street in Lake Charles, Louisiana. I'd been the pastor there about four months going through this. You know, it's supposed to be the honeymoon period. And, and, and about four months. And I'm, I'm running down Ryan Street weeping and saying this to God. Please, I mean, I just graduated from seminary. I hadn't even finished all my class. I had three hours to finish. I'm weeping and saying this to God. Please release me from the ministry and allow me to go into banking or some other illegal operation. <laughs> <clears throat> allow me to go into banking or something like that. Because I said this, I am moral. Listen, I'm not, and I wasn't kidding. I am morally disqualified to be a pastor. Not because I'm running around on Becky, not because I'm spending money, because this matters too much to me and it's too important to my self-worth and my value and my career and I need out. And I've been to seminary for four years. I've been to church for four months. Bad career move, right? I begged him, begged him. And the Lord said to me, nope, 
We're going to get this worked out of you. We're going to get this worked out of you. Because it's not about you, Cliff. It's about me. But I'd made it about me. And, 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 and this is the danger of religious leaders. Man, when I read these Pharisees, I feel sorry for them. I really do, because those are my guys, my peeps, you know. I, I really do. I think, you know, I, how'd you get there? How'd you get there? How did you lose complete touch with reality? I can kill somebody, but I can't walk into this room because it all becomes about power and me, right? I've told you guys this before. I've been up on spring break. My mind's in 37 different directions. I told you, I, some of you would know this. I, I remember telling maybe uh, two years ago that if you guys didn't pray for me, I didn't think I could keep teaching. And people, I said, I wake up on Sunday morning afraid, nervous. Am I smart enough? Is it going to be good enough? Are people going to be impressed? I can't do that. I've, I've, I've done that before. I can't do it. When it becomes about me, when it becomes about my and what I got and me and mine, it's when I think we lose touch. These guys have just lost complete touch with reality. Does that make sense? It's fear. It is. Get the truth. But the truth is that this is bigger than the priest, bigger than me, bigger than you. It's about God. Right? Does that make, does that make sense? Does that help any? I'm just stunned by this when I read this. How we can get to that place where the truth that we think we've got is more important than the reality of what it's doing to others. I had a professor say this to me one time, and I, it's tough to balance, but he said, don't ever get your love for truth to get to the point that you love it more than people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's saying, you know, again, uh, <laughs> wade into this, Cliff. Uh, some of the cultural issues that... Um, that are being pressed and pushed and shoved in both directions. Um, there's fear. And I'll just tell you this, what, however you react to some of these cultural issues, sexual mores, if fear is what's driving it, stop. Okay? Uh, the thoughts and opinions of this teacher are not necessarily thoughts and opinions across this community church. It's elders or leadership. Okay. Uh, there's a difference between accepting people and approving. We've got to be real careful to be sure we're accepting of people. And we accept them and love them. 
at the same time, we can say, this is something I just don't personally approve of in my own value system. But whenever we get hot and hostile and angry and um, irritated or we're trying to control or manipulate people, I think we need to back up. We're going to have to. We're going to have to be able to carry the ball to say enough to people that, that, that our real concern is that, that we love God and love others to the best of our ability. Again, that doesn't mean we accept everything. It means our proof of everything. But we can accept and love uh, and uh, value others no matter. Yeah, y'all are dragging me way in, Gary. Oh, yeah, I know you're not. You're not going to help me. That's not your way. Because we're in control. We're in charge, so we do it. It's okay. I, uh, yeah, I, 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 listen, I'm a company guy, you know, you know that. I, I teach uh, at a school that trains people for ministry. Um, that's my job. And I'm a company guy in, in one respect. I'm a little rebellious in other ways. <laughs> but I think, uh, and this is going to sound bigger and maybe more bold than it should be. And, I, and it's a tension that, that our holding on to power or our holding on to this culture using the instruments of power in this culture are, is going to damage our witness. If we're going to try to hold on to this culture and this, with power, we're going to run you over. Instead of the church and us being known, and I, maybe I, and I doubt if I'm known real well by this, that we're known for our self-sacrifice. You know, I, 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 Francis Chan is a guy you probably don't want to listen to. And I'm not suggesting this for everybody, for every church. I'm glad we have right here. But Francis Chan and them in California decided they were going to take their church outside the building and met in a park. And we're talking about several thousand people. And began a ministry basically without a building. Could we do that? I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm, not suggest, I'm an elder. I'm, I'm going to be called in this week, I know. <laughs> it, it just, it, I guess it just, what's the most important thing to us? Is it to honor God and to love him and to serve him? Or is it to, is it to, pro, is to, is it to perpetuate institutions and systems? Is, is that what is most important to us? To perpetuate systems and, and, and institutions and those kind of things. If I, with any read on my students, I can just tell you they're, uh, they're not into that. They, they want to see some churches and institutions that are saying we're here for to, to care and to give. And I, and I think we do a great job at crossings, to be honest with you. 
I don't know if this is helping at all. I just, thanks a lot, Stuart. <laughs> no, that's a good question. But guys, I, I just, guys, I, I just want to say it this way, that our ability to get where these guys are is real. If we're not, if we're not careful, we can get, my daddy said, the cart before the horse. We can, we can get to where what is supremely important is no longer that important. Yeah, can. That's right. Politics, we, we talk that all the time. So that this legalism of these religious leaders is remarkable in that I want to suggest that what it is, is that they have rationalized the idea that the externals of religion, that the system and the institutions are what make religion real. Instead of what makes religion real is a relationship with the living God. Let me tell you how it works for me, and I've told you this before. Uh, some time ago, I was uh, uh, writing, you know, paying our bills like we do, and writing a check uh, for our tithe. We, we've tithe, we believe that's biblical, and we do it. Uh, anyway, I was writing it, and the Spirit just sort of nudged me and said, uh, I know you're putting this check in, you've been doing this, but when was the last time you put that check in as an act of worship? And I went, can't remember. It was like paying dues. And I thought, that's where the legalism comes in. It's just an act. I just do it. But there's no reality to it. There's no substance to it. Or if I read my Bible in the morning because I got to read three chapters in the morning or, you know, I'm have a car wreck. <laughs> right? Or something will happen. You know, so, so the ritual becomes the reality. Are, are you with me? The ritual becomes the reality. There's nothing wrong with the ritual if it's connected to what? That other word... <laughs> The, the reality, the reality, the, if the ritual is connected to the reality, what these guys have done, they've disconnected the ritual to the reality. Does, it's a good thing to not want to be defiled, but the idea of murdering somebody is the ultimate defilement. So the ritual has to be connected to the reality. And we can get there, right? We can get there where we think just do the ritual, just write the check, just Pray the prayer, just read the word, just all of that is sufficient in itself. And I think that's where these guys got. That's where these guys got. Well, let me ask you to consider this. Uh, what if you and I accept the possibility we've rationalized something that we want to do instead of being something that Jesus can endorse? Is there something sometimes that we, somebody used the word rationalize, that we've rationalized? We said, well, it's not all that bad. But it's not really something that, that Jesus can endorse. I, I'm thinking about this while I'm writing this. I'm saying, okay, Cliff, where, where is this in you? What have you rationalized? And again, it could be something not as, you know, like you're, not, like you're robbing a bank. It could be that you've rationalized the idea that if I read two chapters in my Bible and before I go, I'm good. Or, or it could be that, you know, I'm just, if I go to church on Sunday morning and, you know, I get there and, you know, come late, leave early or whatever, I'm good. 
I've rationalized that this is the reality when it's simply a ritual. Does that make sense? Now, I got to move because we're not going to finish this, but I, I want to introduce this to you. This was the big idea I want to talk about today. And y'all, we, I ask, but that's good. I'm glad. I really am. Sort of. <laughs> kind of. <sighs> I'm going to say some prayers over this thing here in a minute. Um, this is Jesus' affirmation. Verse 33. Now, I, wanna, I just want to un, un, unpack some of this stuff right here for you. Um, Jesus affirms something here that I think we maybe don't think of a lot or see its centrality in the deal. Now, yeah, again, I think Jesus isn't going to... Now, think about this. Jesus has been accused by the religious leaders of blasphemy. What is Jesus saying to Pilate? Who is he? He's a what? See it there? What is Jesus? Pilate calls him that and says, are you saying this on your own account? Huh? King. King of the Jews. Listen, do you know what happens to somebody who claims to be king to the Romans? Huh? dead <laughs> right you, you know i was looking back over some research this past week you know there's several things that we talk about jesus from the gospels that just don't make they if, if we understood when they said them we'd go ooh. on the back of the roman coin is is the the inscription of tiberius caesar son of god so call jesus son of god and see how the romans like it <laughs> right like, king, ruler. Jesus is saying something here that is absolutely treasonous. The fact that Pilate doesn't come unglued to me is amazing. The fact that Pilate doesn't immediately call the Praetorian Guard. These are the top notch special forces, big wheel guys to say, get him in here and get him out of here. Doesn't do that. It, it, it's staggering to me that Jesus, here he is in front of Pilate. And they come to him and he says, so Pilate said, therefore Pilate entered into the praetorium and summoned Jesus said, are you the king of the Jews? This is Jesus' affirmation. And Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative? Or did others tell you? Pilate said, I'm not a Jew, am I? <laughs> you know? uh, your your na nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. That is an instant execution right there. The Romans do not tolerate other kingdoms. This kind of language in the first century is revolutionary. It's dangerous. Because Jesus sets himself up here as the ultimate kingdom and ruler. Now a little sidebar here. Again, remember these thoughts are not across these community churches, elders or leadership. But Jesus sets himself up as a king over every system. Capitalism, socialism, Darwinism, every ism that should be a wasm. <laughs> right? This is a kingdom 
that is over all kingdoms and demands all loyalty. My kingdom, if my kingdom were this world, he says, my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. As it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you're a king. Jesus answered, you, you say correctly, I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who hears the truth hears my voice, listens to my voice. Pilate says, what is truth? Now, Terry last week dealt with this issue of truth. I want to deal with this issue of king. This issue of king. I don't know if you know it or not, and maybe you've looked at these, uh, uh, these data, or as I love to say that, these, this data or these data. Uh, the word kingdom here means this, the effective rule of a king. A kingdom is what we would call the effective rule of a king. In other words, where, where does he rule? What does he rule? Jesus said, where is that? Where is that kingdom? It's not of this world. So Jesus' effective rule is not of this world. We understand as we read the New Testament, if you will, that his kingdom is in the hearts and lives of people. This is the threat again. That Israel and the leaders had said the kingdom of Israel has historic or physical borders. Jesus said, my kingdom's not like that at all. Let me ask you to consider this. In the Gospels, do you know how many times the word kingdom shows up? Sure you do. You just got it right there in front of you. That's why we have Google, okay? Somebody, come on. How many times? That's why God gave us Google. Roughly 120 times. Do you know how many times the word forgive or forgiveness occurs in the Gospels? No, I'm sorry. Uh, kingdom shows up in the Gospels 120 times. Do you know how many times the word forgive or forgiveness shows up in the Gospels? 17. What do we talk about the most? Forgiveness. Why is that? Do a statistical study on the Gospels and find out what Jesus talked about and what Jesus talked about or what Jesus proclaimed was a kingdom. In fact, when you look at the statistical analysis of this, you discover that he says his kingdom will never end. Luke one thirty one. Jesus' first sermon in Mark 1, after John the Baptist had been put into prison, he says, after his cousin had been incarcerated, he begins with, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God, or kingdom of heaven, if you're in Matthew, kingdom of, Matthew, kingdom of heaven and Matthew, kingdom of God and others, the kingdom of God is near. The Greek word near there means it's here, right? Like when I tell my students on Monday morning, the test has drawn near. What do they think? Oh, it'll be here in a couple of days. No, no, it's here, right here. So the, the, the kingdom is here. Jesus said, repent and believe the good news. So, so this notion of kingdom is central, essential to understanding who Jesus is. Jesus as king. Now, 
He already said something about this when he said, my kingdom's not of this world. It's not, he said, look, if my kingdom was, my, my guys would fight you because they would use power and strength. My, my guys aren't going to fight you. That's not the way my kingdom is. It's, it's a, now, let, let, me, let me just, we're going to stop here in just a second, but let me show you how can, this kingdom is not an easy thing. It's the effective rule of a king. But, but I, want you to, I want you to consider this. Jesus affirms that he's a king, and this is a crime Ex, by capital punishment in, in Roman law. This is, not some, this is not just some goofy statement that he makes. The, the Romans don't do, act like that. And when you think about this kingdom, not of this world, there's a, there's a guy in the book of Matthew. Just, if you'll take just a moment, in Matthew 11, there's a guy in Matthew that got confused about this kingdom, like we do. <laughs> like we do. There's a guy who gets confused about this kingdom in Matthew 11. One of my favorite passages you've heard me talk about before. His name is John the Baptist. Now, John had preached the kingdom's coming. There's somebody coming. He's going to be the king. And John has said several things. that He said his winnowing fork is in his hand, which means he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff, the good from the bad. The, his, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. He's going to cut it down. The tree, he understands, if you will, as Israel. So John is this guy who makes all these proclamations and he even identifies Jesus. Think how certain he is. There he is. That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How certain he is. Then he goes to jail for a little while. Herod throws him in jail. And the realities of life beat the certainty right out of him. Doesn't life do that? Listen, I want to talk about this. we're going to talk about this kingdom next week. Listen, this kingdom, the way it's constructed, life will beat the living daylights out of your certainty about this kingdom. Some of us wonder, does love really work? Or should we try to get power? Does self-sacrifice really affect people? Or should we get our own way and push these other people to the margins? Or is this kingdom not of this world? So John's confused. Look what he says, or it's recorded. And when Jesus, or he said, now when John, verse two, heard, and now while John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he's heard what Jesus is doing. He said, he sent word by his, watch, look at this. Are you the expected one? Or should we look for someone else? Get that now. Who is this? John the Baptist. He's the guy that said, when I saw the spirit of God descending on him as a dove, I knew this was the one who would baptize in the Holy Spirit. Now he's saying, are you really? You ever had that experience? See, this kingdom's not of this world. And sometimes when we do the right thing, it doesn't work out. Right? Sometimes when we take the values of this kingdom and do them, it doesn't work out. Our 401k doesn't go up or something doesn't happen great. So John says, hey, 
And by the way, this term here in, in verse 3 is the expected one. That's a messianic title. That's a title for the Messiah. Are you the expected one? Or should we look for somebody else? As long as I've been in this kingdom and tried to live my life by its values, there are times when I say to God, is this really going to work? Is this really going to work? Is really servanthood better than just taking the reins and jamming it down everybody's throat? Is sacrifice better than demanding my own way? You know, I'll just tell you, don't, don't read the Sermon on the Mount very often. Because Jesus couldn't mean that stuff. <laughs> right? There's a whole system that says that the Sermon on the Mount will not be enforced until the millennium. I don't believe that. Look what Jesus says. Jesus answered and said to him, go report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. That doesn't sound like the axe laid to the root of the tree or the winnowing fork in your hand, does it? I told you before in, in John there when it says, he will separate the wheat from the chaff, that you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit or fire. It's not and fire, it's or. The Greek word kai. You'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit or fire, one or the other. Because that winnowing fork, that doesn't sound like a winnowing fork and a tree laid. That doesn't sound like what we call judgment, does it? John's confused. Wait a minute, Jesus, I thought you were coming and taking names and cleaning house. That's what I thought you were going to do. I thought you were going to straighten everybody up. I thought you were going to get this culture back where it ought to be. I thought you were going to take names and get people out. <laughs> He's healing. He's writing that. Now look at this incredible verse, verse six. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. How do you get offended at Jesus? With his upside down kingdom. How do you get offended at Jesus? When his kingdom doesn't match my kingdom. My kingdom is the one I want going forward. So, so this kingdom is confusing when we take it seriously. This kingdom that Jesus talks about all the time is the central theme of his entire ministry. And yet it somehow gets wide of us. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? So I want you to think about this week. We're, we're going to come back and get this. I've got, I've got a lot of stuff here. I want to I discuss this because there's an issue here that I think has to have some attention. So I want to ask you, I don't have this written down on my deal. I didn't think we'd get this far, honestly. I really didn't. Here, here's what I ask you to do as, as application. If you think about this this week, what does it mean? What, ask yourself this week. What does it mean to be under or in Maybe that's a better word. What does it mean to be in the rule of God? In my family or my work or my neighborhood, any one of those. What does it mean to be in the kingdom of God? 
the rule of God in one of those areas? What does it mean in my life that I'm in this kingdom that's not of this world, in my work, in my neighborhood, in my family, in my relationships? What does that look like? I'll tell you one thing. It is likely, maybe not necessarily, it's likely to not look like everything else. It's likely. It's likely not to look like everybody else and everything else. So would you consider that? Well, I, I will consider that. You know, What does it look like to be in his kingdom in my life? We're going to pick this up next week. I, there's more here to this that I think we, again, if it's mentioned 120 times in the Gospels, we need to understand this. It's, it's 10 times, or I can't do the math here. So it, it, it's, it's 10 times more, or almost 10 times, or 11, whatever, more than forgiveness, right? Almost 10 times, not quite. You guys that are math people, y'all can figure that out. I'm a theologian, not a mathematician. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, here we are trying our best to understand what you mean and what you have for us. Trying our best to, to learn and to live not just gather more information, but to learn how to live in this world that we live in. But as participants, as adherents to this incredible kingdom that you've invited us. Would you help us as we meditate on these matters and think on these and apply these this week in our relationships? You'd help us to be known as kingdom people people who align themselves with this thing called the kingdom of God. We pray this in Jesus' strong and mighty name. Amen.